Good morning. Thank you, musicians. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today under the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who purchased for us eternal life. We have been redeemed by his blood. We are in a new covenant relationship with you today. We enjoy covenant blessings. Father, we so oftentimes overlook the blessings of being your disciples, of being in your house, of being called children of God. And we look only to the sufferings of what it means to be children of God. That those who are in Christ will have trials and tribulations and people will persecute us for his name's sake. But Father, you have brought us into your house, not so that we might be sad, not so that we might always suffer, but that we might share right now in the blessings that are to come. We just want to say thank you. You are almighty God. Father, let your grace be made known to us today through the reading of your word, through the study of your word. Let us understand you better and love you more and love others more. Lord God, teach us today that belief and that faith is not something we do with our brains, but that it is something we do with our brains and our hands and our feet. That we must know you and we must live Christ. Father, Give life to dead hearts today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm doing something a little bit different today. I've given myself a monumental task. I hope that I can do it uh, in an hour's time. Last week we talked about sin. Not so much as a thing we do, but really as a status that we have, a condition state. And I want to draw a connection today from how a completely sinful human being can become completely righteous in God's sight. That's a very serious thing for God that we be righteous in his sight, that we have a right standing before him. The word righteous is a legal term in the Bible. And it means being able to stand acquitted, guiltless before God. Hebrews 10, 14 says this. Christ has perfected once and for all those who are being sanctified. There is a move from being completely sinful to being completely righteous. And that's a big, big gap. It's an infinite gap. Think about what we've done as finite human beings. We have separated ourselves from an infinite God. And we need an infinite solution to an infinite problem. A a problem solver who's big enough to fill in the gap that's between man and God. Sometimes you see it illustrated as two sides of a cliff. And you see man on one side and God on the other. Unfortunately, illustrations never do justice to just the sheer reading of the word of God. The fact of the matter is, sinful man, whenever he came in contact with holy God without being sanctified by the blood, he died. Completely dead. I want to answer three questions this morning. One, how does sinful man come into the presence of a holy God? Number two, what is the nature of our relationship whereby which we may come to God? And three, how do we enter into this relationship and remain in this relationship? Last week I used the concept of original sin. To talk about our status, we, used, we talked about total depravity. I heard myself use the word utter several times, and I want to make a quick correction on that. 
utter depravity is not total depravity. Total depravity is our condition, our fallen human nature is in before we come to Christ. And total does not mean utterly. I'm afraid that somebody may have heard me saying last week that we are as sinful as we could possibly be, and that's just not the case. Some people are incredibly sinful in this life. Certainly, we can think of historical examples, Saddam Hussein, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy. Examples we can pile up of people who allowed themselves to be completely separated from any kind of moral consciousness whatsoever. And those people certainly would be candidates for what it means to be utterly depraved. But that doesn't mean today that because you're not like one of those characters that you are not also totally depraved if you do not know Jesus Christ. Total depravity means or refers to the extent to which sin affects your nature as a human being. The word total means complete. In other words, we are not all of us, some are, but not all of us are by God's grace as sinful as we could possibly be. But, and this is a big but, you can laugh if you're a child. I'm laughing, so apparently I'm a child. <laughs> this is a big but. Sin has so affected us that it has extended itself to our entire being, our body and our spirit, our deeds and our desires, what we think and what we do. Sin has rendered us completely incapable of coming to God on our own. That is the testimony of Scripture. If I opened up the Bible and read all of the passages that make that clear, going from historical narrative to propositional statements that say as much when Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I opened up the narratives and I began to read the examples of Aaron's sons who offered an unpleasing uh, <clears throat> aroma to the Lord and their incense and were killed immediately or to Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant and died instantly. Aaron, who was warned not to enter into the Holy of Holies, but for one day a year on the seventh month and the tenth day, and to offer only a sacrifice of a pure lamb, only after he himself had been consecrated. The examples are overwhelming in Scripture. You cannot come to God on your own. So keep this in mind today. It is popular in our culture to say, choose the religion that fits you best. And the underlying assumption of that is that you can get to God on the way that works best for you. You can cavalierly walk up to God and have that relationship that you want to have with him. We, we see this as kind of a, maybe a buffet of we'll take this part of God and we'll take that part of God and... We'll get rid of the parts we don't like. Or maybe a negotiation where we sit down, we're on one side of the table, God is on the other side of the table. We write down our demands, we put them over on their face, we slide them over to God and tell God, this is how we're going to worship you. We're going to worship you on our own terms. We don't need the church. We don't need to be righteous. We don't like those bits and pieces about sexual morality. We don't like those bits and pieces about unity with believers. We especially don't like Christians. Christians are obnoxious people. They're constantly telling us what's right and wrong. And so I don't want to be a part of a church anymore. So God, here's my deal. You want, you want me? You want me to be with you, God? Here it is. That's my deal. You've got it wrong. Completely wrong. God does not need you. He does not need your fellowship. He has the eternal fellowship of the Holy Trinity. You can give him nothing. God gives you his commands and you can take them or leave them. And you take them as a whole or you take them not. You have either everything or nothing. You're not going to 
wishy-washy, waver between, back and forth, whether or not you're going to follow God's covenant and have a relationship with him. Now, you may do that in reality, but you will not do it efficaciously. There will be no effect to your being. There will be no real salvation. You will not have relationship with God going back and forth, whether you're going to be in covenant with him or not. You will be with God on his terms, or you will not be with him at all. In fact, the word depravity comes from the Latin word depravare, which is a fusing of two words, de, which means thoroughly or down, and pravus, which means crooked or perverse. So to be thoroughly perverse. And in the Bible, the word perverse means contrary to a standard, and in the Bible, that standard is God. So to be totally depraved is to be across this negotiating table with God, needing all of him and everything that he can give you because your status is one that is in complete rebellion to him and his law. So this is our status of what it means to be human, to have human nature before we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. To use a Baptist term, that means born again. Our condition was totally averse in both mind and body, corrupted and guilty of being in a state contrary to God. How does sinful man then come into the presence of a holy God? If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, we're going to be looking at verses, just for the moment, verses 1 and 2. The book of Leviticus explains the nature and state of the covenant of Israel with God after he brought them out of Egypt. The particulars of how this is to be enacted. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. What happened there? Aaron's family is the only family that God will permit to be his priest. And a priest, the only thing a priest does is that he mediates between the people and between God. He's a mediator. His job is to reconcile two parties. And Aaron's sons were permitted to be priests. But back in chapter 10, they died. Actually, they were killed instantly by God. For offering to God a strange fire. The concept is that they tried to get fancy with their religion. And to offer unto God something he said not to offer. The very serious sin in the Bible. It's a very serious thing. That when God says A, we do A, and we don't do A+, plus, or we don't do B, that we do exactly what God has said. That we don't try and make it better or make it worse. This is what Saul did. Saul tried to offer sacrifices to God instead of destroying the sacrifices. He thought it would be a waste, though God told him to slaughter every being, every living thing. He kept some for sacrifices. He was going to be better at religion than even God himself. And the Bible tells us that on that day that Saul was cut off. That was the day that Saul was no longer recognized by God as king of Israel. And then a very, very violent thing happens. Samuel takes a sword and cuts the head off of the king that he tried to bring in to the kingdom. God wants sin eradicated. And so these boys here are going to mix incense. They're going to try and take God's worship, worship of God, and they're going to mix in some other type of incense Perhaps that incense was incense of idols. To try and make everyone happy. To show that God will share his glory with other idols so that there might be peace. 
so that we might all get along. That is what we want after all, isn't it? We want to all get along. We want peace with man. And in order to get peace with man, we sacrifice peace with God. But peace with God comes through obedience and obedience alone. And Aaron's sons were consumed by fire the moment, the very moment that they offered that strange incense to the Lord that was forbidden. So now Aaron, who has to continue to be priest, after his sons have been burned alive, listen to the warning. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, they drew near. Remember that phrase, drew near, because it's going to play a very important role when we get to Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. That phrase of drawing near. They, they tried to get close with God on their own terms. And listen to what God says to Moses. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. A very serious thing. You come to God without God's credentials for coming to him and it is death. He must come correctly. He must come through the covenant. And so the rest of Leviticus 16 is a description, a very specific description about how Aaron should come. Look at verse 3. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Here's how he should do it. Now pay very close attention. If there's anything that's important in this passage, it's this one theme Coming to God is a serious, serious thing. You come in this way with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now they're at the tabernacle. This is a tent that's set up, set up in the middle of the Israelites. It has an outer court. That outer court is outside where there is an altar where sacrifices are offered daily. Where people bring the best of their flock. They lay a hand on it. They don't say anything. They lay one hand on it. They, they, are, they are communicating. They slaughter the animal there. It is offered as a sacrifice. And this goes on annually. And for seven months and ten days, sacrifices daily are being, daily I should say, daily are being sacrificed. So I just want you to get this in mind. This is a very, very bloody place. Blood is everywhere. Animals are being sacrificed daily. The priests are going to have blood on them. They're going to be desensitized to watching these beautiful animals be slaughtered on the altar daily. Until the day where all of God's tabernacle, which has been splattered with blood, save for that of the Holy of Holies, now has to be cleansed itself from all of the defilement. Listen to this, he has to wear a special garment, a, lin a linen undergarment on his body. This symbolizes the holiness. Angels wore linen or were said to have worn linen. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So before this priest goes to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation, he must first make sure he's clean. And his family is clean. 
And he shall take two goats, set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, we don't know much about what Azazel is, but the, the figure represents evil. One of these goats is going to represent evil. The other one is going to represent God. And they're going to cast lots. It's a roll of the dice, but it is consecrated by God. This is not going to be. These two lambs walk in. They are, as one commentator said, Billy Goat and Billy Goat. They are identical. But the casting of the lot is God's providential decision to choose one goat to bear the sins of Israel, and one goat to represent Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell to the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that it that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. Notice that the sprinkling keeps him from touching this holy ark of the covenant. And he's to do it seven times. Seven in the Bible represents the number of completion or perfection. There is perfect atonement. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all of their sins. Aaron is sanctifying this temple, consecrating this tabernacle because of the amount of sins that have been sacrificed for throughout the year. This is today what we would call the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And Jews still celebrate it. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out of the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. Now the altar has to be cleansed. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat. Now they're intermingled, these sacrifices, to show that the sin sacrifices... The guilt offerings are now intermingled. Every type of offering that is made at this tabernacle is now intermingled between these two bloods, the blood of the bull, the blood of the goat, and they're going to be sanctifying, atoning the altar to make the altar pure. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place... And the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present, present the live goat. That goat is happy. He's seen everything that's happened to his friends. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. This is the only time of the year that the priest ever lays both of his hands on the live goat. He only ever lays one, but in this one he lays both. Again, it is a symbol of complete there is a symbol of completion, of completely atoning for the wickedness of the year. And he shall confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. And all their transgressions and all their sins... And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. 
In other words, a man, there's going to be some guy who has been designated there to carry this goat out. And he better make sure that that goat doesn't return. This return, this goat is to symbolize the sins being removed. Yeah, all of the sins have been atoned for here. They've been forgiven throughout the year. But now this bloody tabernacle itself has to be cleansed. And every individual sin must be finally purged. That's what the word kippur means. Purged. Completely forgotten of. Gone. Eradicated. This is a real thing. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. They're not clean. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Well, why is he making atonement again? Because he just did an unclean thing. He has got to be so clean before he goes before God. Can you imagine, you, you, ever, you ever have something where you've got a, like a problem at your house and you've got to troubleshoot it and there's like 18 steps and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to figure this thing out. Stand on your leg, you know, and hop twice and your computer will turn back on. Did you unplug your computer? You know what I'm talking about where you've got to do all those steps and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to figure this out. Just imagine this. This is your eternal life. This is your life. And if you mess anything up, you don't do this, this right, R-I-T-E, correctly, it's your life. He's got to take off those garments and offer another offering. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought into the place of atonement to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And this shall be a statute to you forever. That in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. It's to be a complete Sabbath. They are to suffer themselves Unto complete dietary and functional work to, to not do anything on this day. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you forever that atonement be made for the people of Israel once, the year, once a year because of all their sins and Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Interesting that Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Why? Because he just saw his two sons get burned up because they tried to go to God on their own. The entire tabernacle has to be consecrated. The priest has to be consecrated. Because you cannot come to God in your sin and live. And why do we think that today it's any different? Well, they, there's no tabernacle. How come? How come? Why don't you bring your dog to this church and we sacrifice it right outside of those doors? Or your turtle or a cat. Listen. Don't cry over that one. I, I see you, Tanya. How come you don't do that today? What's happened? 
this is a very serious issue. There was a covenant of works, and we learned about that. That was between Adam and Eve and God. And they were given a command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are really only, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boil this down into two overarching covenants in the Bible. One is the covenant of works, and the other are the covenants of grace. And they have a greater and they have a lesser and greater degree. So in the first sense is the covenant of works. Man is given a command... Perfect man in perfect world is given a command with perfect woman, with perfect animals. And he's given a command to obey God and he doesn't keep it. And he represents all of us. And because of his sin, now we all inherit that sin, Romans 5, 12 through 21. As through one man, sin passed upon all and death has come upon all through the one man's sin. That's our status. The covenant of works failed. Nobody can get to God by working their way to heaven. No one. So now God makes a covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace begins with Moses. And it begins at Mount Sinai. Think about the whole text we just read. And all of the provisions that God put into this covenant for sacrifices... To make atonement, and the word atonement means covering, it is both a wiping away of our sins and a putting us right with God. It both expiates and propitiates. We are cleansed of our sins and we're in a right relationship with God. And God gives them a very, very particular detailed instruction on how they can have their sins wiped away completely and how they can have a right relationship with God until, of course, they sin again. And next year they're going to... On the seventh month and the tenth day, do the same dadgum thing. But it's still a covenant of grace. It's God's mercy to his people because he knew they wouldn't be able to keep it. If our perfect parents in a perfect world couldn't keep it, what makes you think imperfect people in an imperfect world could keep it? You cannot please God on your own. We must have God's grace. Now what is the relationship here? So I'm using a word that may need further clarification and it's the word covenant. The word covenant means in the Oxford Dictionary an agreement between two parties. But I don't like the word agreement because as we've already seen, it's really not an agreement. As much as it is a unilateral condescension of God's grace. Unilateral meaning it's one way and God is graciously saying, if you do these things, you'll live. There's, there's really no agreement to be had. Either you do them and live or you don't do them and you die. This is the covenant. And we must always, if we're going to be with God, be in covenant. We must have a covenant relationship with God. That means in order for us to, to, to be his friend, to pray to him, to have him care for us, to give us eternal life, we must have a covenant with him, a relationship. And that covenant is based upon his decision, what, what he's given to us. So you, this idea that you can just pray to God willy-nilly without any blood, does that... What I just read to you, does that give you any hope that you can pray to God today, that you can have forgiveness for your sins today without any blood, without any agreement between you and him? Shouldn't. Should terrify you. Should ask the question, how then can we be with God? It's only through blood. These covenants are the covenants of grace and the covenant, covenant of works and covenant of grace. But praise be to God that the covenant that he gave to Moses, the first covenant of grace, was not the only covenant of grace. There is a better covenant. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to answer my third question. We're moving quickly this morning. How do we enter into the new and better covenant? 
We see that that old covenant is gone. We see that we're not doing that since we're not doing this regulations. We're not offering sacrifices. What are we offering today? What are you offering today to God to be in relationship with him? What is your covenant? What is the agreement that the two of you have have or that he has with you? Because you might think that you have a relationship with God, but if you don't have the relationship with God the way God says so here, you don't have any relationship at all except that you are under his wrath. Now, verse 1, chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. But behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section. That's daily. Performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. Not not just any priest, but the high priest. The most worthy of priests goes into this Holy of holies, this is where God dwells in a cloud. And as he threatened and told Aaron, you tell Aaron, the high priest, don't you go in there. Except for one day and under the blood or you will die. And now the author of Hebrews is picking up on this. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now we saw that both sins are intermingled of the bull and of the sheep, the lamb, or excuse me, the goat. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, when he says here, whoever wrote Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, he is assuming that the book that we just read from was inspired by God. And here's how it was inspired. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what he's dealing with here is he's dealing with the temporary nature of Yom Kippur. It is a yearly, a yearly atoning day where the sins must be forgiven. And if that day's not observed, your sins aren't forgiven. You're not in covenant relationship with God. You don't have God. You're out. It's got to be done every year exactly the same way. It's what he said. It's a statute forever. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through, listen to the words, greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, he calls Jesus' body the, the heavenly tent. And what did the tent, the first tent, the tabernacle contain? It contained God. It was the place where God's presence dwelt among men. John says in John 1.14 that the word that was God, that was with God in the beginning became flesh, and he uses the same word. It says dwelt, but he uses the same word that's translated to tabernacle 
in verse 14. And so it could be read this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of God. Full of grace and of truth. Jesus is God's presence in the world. Listen to what they called him. He shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. A living, breathing, walking tabernacle. God is in this body. He has access to God. If you're going to get to God, you've got to come through this tabernacle. The old one's gone. It's why we're not sacrificing animals today. If you want God, you've got to come through this body. Jesus Christ, a historical person who really lived 2,000 years ago, who was really crucified under Pontius Pilate, who really rose from the dead so that we might have purification for our sins. Paul called him our Passover lamb. He is the lamb who takes away our sins. When John looked at Jesus, he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why do you think John used the word take away? Because it's the same imagery of the scapegoat who took away the sins from God and separated them. You don't come through this tent. You don't have God. You understand that today? You understand this idea that you have God apart from Christ? It's impossible. You and Jesus, you and God do not have your own thing going. You don't. He says here, how much... This year, for if the blood of goats and bulls for the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, and they did, they really did. People ask, how were Jews saved in the Old Testament? They were saved by grace, but they were under the grace of a lesser covenant. Is that what it said? There's now a better covenant, a greater covenant. They were saved by faith in God that one day God would wipe away those sins. And whether or not they had the name Jesus in mind, I'm sure they didn't. But they knew that God would one day deliver them from their sin. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have a better covenant. Therefore, he is the mediator, word there, priest of a new covenant, a new agreement, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. What's he saying there? He's saying that God has given us a promised inheritance of eternal salvation. But the only way for that eternal salvation, that inheritance to be real, is that someone has to die. And he says this, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all its vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The first covenant. The first covenant was sealed with blood. It was effective by blood, but blood of temporary animals. Jump over to chapter 10 as we conclude. Look at verse 5. 10 verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said this. 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus is everything that God requires in one person. He is not only the tabernacle tent, but he is the priest who offers the sacrifice. But he's not only offering the sacrifice of a goat or a bull, he is actually offering himself. Jesus is everything. Everything that we need to have community with God. To be with God, to know God, to have his fellowship. When Christ died on the cross, tells us in the Gospels that the curtain that separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy place, the place that was only could be entered once a year by the high priest and only after he was cleansed, that when that was done, that the curtain, it says, was rended. It was ripped violently down the middle to show that man can now have access to God through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God this morning, you want to have a relationship with him, you have to do it through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now today that sounds so mean. So mean. And what about people who, who are really nice people? They're really kind and they just happen to, de- to believe differently. I know nice people who take wrong directions all the time and get lost. I heard about a story of a beautiful couple that had a child and they were, they, they were going away for Thanksgiving and they were up in Oregon and they, the, the husband looked at the map, very sweet couple, he looked at the map and he thought, hey, if we take this route, we'll actually be able to get to, your mother, to his mother-in-law's faster. But what he didn't know was that this was a trucker road and when it snows, it becomes impassable. He couldn't pass on it. There were no gas stations, nothing. Nice person. They were good people. They were, they were in Silicon Valley and they were, they were living a life of, of Riley. It was a life of luxury and they had made all the right choices in life, but they took a wrong turn. And as nice as they were, the elements still came. And the husband ended up dying as he was looking for food and looking for help. He froze to death. You know, what does your good intention have to do with surviving God's wrath? There's a way. This is a way. I am Think about all of the things Jesus could have said. I am the right religion. He could have said that, but he didn't say it. I'm one of the religions. I'm a good teacher. I'm a nice guy. You should follow my, my way of life because my way of life's the best. No, he said, I'm the way. Do you know what the Christians were called before they were called Christians? They were called the way. In a week, we're, Stephanie and I are going to Charlotte. 
And I can't take any way I want to to get there. I have to take the only way to get there. Or I don't get there. And I can have all the good intentions that I want. And Jesus said, I am the way. And I am pleading with you this morning. If you are taking any other way to God, except through the tent of Jesus' body, I am pleading with you, repent of your sins and follow the way, the truth, and the life. Because you will not come to God any other way. What's the application of this verse? That's the biggie. Well, now how do I go back to my house today and get my grass to grow greener? Look at verses 10 22 through 25. Let's look at 19. Let's start at 19. Okay? 10, 19. Therefore, brothers. Now, by the way, that word brothers means women too, okay? It means brothers and sisters. Therefore, those of you, listen to me. Because I think if you're here today, you're probably saying in your heart or you're probably saying with your actions that you believe that Jesus is the way. I think you might be saying that. I I hope you're saying that. Doubtful that there's somebody in here today who has no idea where they are. You're in church. And so we're preaching the book to people who should believe this, this covenant. This truth I just said, that Jesus is the only way. So you believe that. Now what do we do? Because we have this idea that we've come to Jesus once and it's it's over. I got baptized, I'm done. Therefore, Christians... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What is the confidence we have? Think about what what he's saying. Aaron had, the only confidence that Aaron had was God's commandment. You tell Aaron if he goes his own way to me, I'm going to kill him. He cannot with his sinful nature come into my presence. You tell him if he does, he's dead. He's got to come right or not at all. And when it says, how do we have confidence? Who has earned us this confidence to go into the holy place of God and to say we're with God? I'm with God today. I have peace with God. It is the one who died on the cross and who purchased for us access to God. Paul said we may now enter the throne of grace boldly. We may... We may come to God boldly. Why? Because we did something? No, no, no. But because Christ did something. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now listen to what he said. By the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Remember I told you to watch that word, right? Aaron's sons were the ones who tried to draw near to have fellowship with God on their own terms. And they were killed. If you want to draw near to God today, you have to come through the tent of Christ. What he has done for you. The new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. There's that word again, way, new and living way. This is the way, it's the path, it's the only path. Here in Christ, you draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean. See that word sprinkle here? Do you hear all of the old covenant words there? Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Do we have to do baptism again this year? Do you have to come on the seventh month and the tenth day to be baptized? Why do we only baptize once? Because Christ has offered himself once and for all. As I said at the beginning, Christ has perfected once and for all those who are being saved. There's a past, a past tense reality of being forgiven once and for all. And there is a present condition. We are being saved. We are being sanctified. We are growing in righteousness. So the covenant, while over in the heavenly places, is not over for you and I. We must remain in the covenant. You must remain. How do you remain? Number one, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. Some of you are right now, this very day, tinkering with false religion. You have idols in your life. You have, and I mean real idols, like graven images in your very homes. You are, you are tinkering around with demonic activities. You are, you are messing around with false teaching. You are trying to mix the blood of goats with the blood of Christ. You're wavering. You're unstable. You don't know right doctrine. You say, how do you know that? Because my staff has Facebook. And I'm, I'm, I'm always shocked that Christians don't see the connection between what you're doing here today and what you do on your Facebook page. And what you do in your life. You got to hold fast. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to the teaching. The, the word for wavering is also used in Ephesians 4. And it tells us that the way we keep from wavering is that God has given us teachers to teach the truth. Some of you aren't sure today whether or not you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You came to Christ when you were young, but you're not there today. You're wavering. It says, hold fast to your faith without wavering. Then it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So not only are you committed to this faith in your mind, but you are active in your life. This is how you stay in the covenant. Where are your evidences of a changed life? I have to ask myself that every day. When I lose my patience with my wife or with my children or with that stupid driver on the turnpike, how is that evidence? He says, let us stir up love and good works. Stir up one another to love and good works. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, that the way that we do that is that we give of ourselves to God's people. And then he says this. I love this one. <laughs> this is great. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do I love that one? Because one of the biggest myths of today's world is that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Do you know what John says about people who leave the fellowship, who leave the church, who care more about other things and about, you know, Jesus says there were, there were some who grew up amongst the, they grew up amongst the thorns, but the, the, the issues of life choked them out. They were more concerned with jobs. They were more concerned with, with everything else, with their own passions and their own desires, and it choked them out, and they couldn't stay. And so John says about these types of people that they went out from us, they left the body of believers because they were never of us. 
Never. They were here for a time, and it looked like they were saved. I hear people say this on television all the time. I used to be a Christian. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. If you're not a Christian today, you didn't used to be one back then. They went out of us because they were never of us. They left the church because they weren't a part of God's people. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something right now. I can't be, I cannot be more honest right now. I am mad at some of God's people. I am mad. They have upset me. They have hurt me. But what does that have to do with Jesus' church? Because you know what I know about me? I know I've hurt people too. I know you've been hurt by the church. But how have you hurt the church? You say that you're leaving the church because of X, Y, and Z. Listen to what John says. You leave the church. You were never of us. This is a warning, a real warning. They went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have stayed with us. But in their going, they showed that they were never of us. But had they been of us, they would have done what? They would have stayed the course. As hard as it gets to be in the church, they stay. They stay with God's people and don't run after false gods and other religious facts the first time they get upset. And he says here, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you say you've received Christ and you go on living like you haven't, there isn't a sacrifice for you. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? This person who leaves God's people, who leaves God's covenant blessings, who now plays around with other teachings, who now follows other gods, who once came down the aisle, who once tasted, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 and chapter 6, he once tasted the grace of God, now he's cut off because he's trampled underfoot the covenant. Scholars call these warning passages because they are to warn us that yes, while Christ has perfected once and for all those who are being saved, is forgiven forever, no fear of condemnation anymore in Christ Jesus. But the second part of that is this, those who are being Saved. Father, your word tells us that we've come to you because you brought us to the cross. We are forgiven in Christ. Your word tells us in Ephesians 2, 4 that we were dead, but that you made us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now it is you who made us alive. We are alive in Christ. It is by your grace that we have been saved through faith. This has not been of ourselves, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And so today, Lord, if we are with you, if we're able to talk to you, it's only by the mercies that you've shown to us through the shed blood of your perfect tent, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. It's only by him that we're in. But then your word tells us, you have made us that we are your workmanship. That you have created us in Christ Jesus to do good works which you prepared for us in advance. No, these good works don't save us. But they keep us in the covenant. 
I believe, Lord Jesus, that many of us today do not take seriously the reality that we may have a false faith, that we may have abandoned the one. And so, Lord, I pray for those people today in this very house who may be unsure about where they stand with you. I pray that they would come, that they would join, that they would join the body, that they would give their lives to you. It is my prayer that you would touch them again. We know, Lord, that that there were times where people fell away, but that they returned, Lord. And so we pray for those people who have returned to return, those people to maintain their life in the body by your grace. Lord, perfect us once and for all. We know that we are perfected once and for all, but help us now by your spirit. Empower us with your spirit to remain committed to you so that we might have confidence and assurance of our election. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.